This episode is brought to you by EFG Holding, a trailblazing financial institution with a universal bank in Egypt and the leading investment bank in the Middle East and North Africa. Hello again from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, and welcome to a new season of What I Did Next. I welcome a new guest each episode, and we take a deep dive into their personal journeys, exploring the twists and turns their lives have taken to understand what these pivotal moments mean. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome fashion entrepreneur Imran Ahmed, who talks to me about his life journey and how good advice and a quick decision saved his company, the business of fashion, during the pandemic. I came back from Paris Fashion Week that first week of March 2020 with the plan to sign a lease on this big, huge new office in London, in Soho. By the time I came back, it was pretty clear that we were about to enter a period of great uncertainty. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Not signing that lease probably saved mm. business, mm. actually, because yeah. not having to pay all, all of rent. that rent. Of course. Uh, it was my CFO, Fraser Park, who I will credit forever in the history of BOF, who said to me, maybe we don't need an office. <laughs> when we went home that day to do the test work from home, we never went back to the mm. office. Imran Ahmed is one of the leading voices in fashion. And as the CEO and editor-in-chief of the business of fashion, he employs over 75 people with a presence in London, New York, Paris, and Shanghai. He began his career at McKinsey before realizing it wasn't the right fit for him. He changed tracks and went on to launch the BOF as a blog in 2007. Today, it boasts a community of 800,000 email subscribers and 100,000 paying members across 120 countries. Earlier this year, What I Did Next was a media sponsor of the first edition of Egypt Fashion Week. As part of the event, I met and interviewed Imran in front of a live audience at the Agricultural Museum in central Cairo. Imran comes across as an extremely thoughtful person who takes time to consider issues and provides insightful and careful analysis. He is charming, super intelligent, with just the right amount of a social butterfly aura about him to know how to network in the hyperfickle world of luxury fashion. He brings the added superpower of being an outsider and a latecomer to the fashion game, which affords him the ability to be clear-eyed about the industry's positives and negatives. When I interviewed Imran, he was returning to Cairo after 24 years, having visited in 1999 as a child. He now lives in the UK, but he grew up in Canada to immigrant parents from Kenya. My origins are Indian. My, you know, my great-grandparents migrated from India to East Africa before my parents migrated from East Africa to Canada before I migrated from Canada to the UK. And so the reason I see the world the way I do is very much a reflection of my own personal history and experience. And I think it's super important um, that as we think about business, as we think about fashion, as we think about the way we try to understand everything that's happening in the world, that we do so with a global lens. Um, my childhood was amazing. My parents nurtured both my nerdy, academic side and my creative, expressive side. And both of those things are elements that, you know, I've been trying to reconcile most of my career and most of my life. When it came to studying, uh, I went and studied business. Um, it was the responsible thing to do. I was very interested in business growing up, uh, in entrepreneurship in particular, in building things, in, in leading 
people in creating things. Um, and so I pursued a career in business. And then what happened was, is I just fell into this, not a trap, but a track, mm -hmm. you know? And so when you go to the kinds of universities and schools that I went to, uh, you end up on a track. And, you know, I ended up working in management consulting at a company called McKinsey. And McKinsey was amazing in some respects because it exposed me to lots of different types of business problems and lots of different parts of the world. And I worked with incredible people. Uh, but it all felt a bit empty to me. And I felt like every day when I was walking into the office, I was leaving a lot of myself at home. And after a while, that really, um, it started weighing on me. And I knew that also that I'd worked so hard to get to where I was. Um, my parents had worked so hard to help me get to where I was. I was raised by a community of people who encouraged me to find my path. And I just knew my path wasn't at McKinsey. So um, I came from completely outside the fashion industry. The interesting thing to me is that you made that recognition at a very young age. You were 29 when you realized this is not my my world. This is not my life. I'm not happy. Um, so you went on a meditation course, a 10-day silent meditation course, and mm -hmm. came out of that with a sense of clarity, I guess, and a sense of new beginnings. Yeah. I mean, we talk about defining moments sometimes. I know on your podcast, you yeah. talk about pivot points. Um, going on this uh, Vipassana meditation retreat, which for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's 10 days of complete silence. No reading, no writing, no music, no eye contact, no engagement. No with, eye contact. No eye oh, contact. Oh, wow. No engagement with any external stimuli. Yep. The only thing you engage with is yourself. It rewired the way I felt um, about myself. Mm -hmm. It rewired the way I reacted to the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life. Yep. And what I really took away is that, you know, life is fundamentally about struggle. And I was struggling a lot. You know, I was in a way very privileged to have the struggle I was having. I, you know, I'd gone to Harvard Business School and worked at this famous company and I was making a lot of money and living a great life in a city that I loved. But I was, I, I was still finding that I was struggling through that. I was not happy. Mm -hmm. You know, I was not fulfilled. And so the lesson for me was that it is in our struggles that we find ourselves and that we find our purpose. And I just knew my purpose yeah. was not linked to running around the world, advising companies about business problems in industries that I didn't care about. Yeah. But what I knew was that there was some magic in the intersection between the creative side of me and the analytical side of me. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I just left that meditation retreat with a sense of clarity that my value, my sense of purpose was going to be linked somehow to bringing creativity and business together. You know, you've already said in the past that fashion was always something you were interested in as a child. You used to watch a TV show in Canada that you, that left a big imprint on you. Yes. But that's one, you know, we all have these childhood dreams that we keep in our back pocket, but very few people act on them. Yeah. You actually did. Um, how did that come about? How did you 
decide, okay, I'm really going to try this. So this, I think we're now 2007. Yeah. Um, and you decided to begin a blog. Yeah. Writing about fashion. You began that way, right? So I had spent the previous eight months trying to set up an incubator for young fashion designers. And my observation in having interacted with designers in the industry is that, you know, no matter how creative and talented they were, um, the realities of business mm. were kind of a rude awakening for yep. a lot of them. So they would come out of these famous fashion schools like Central St. Martin's in London or the Antwerp Academy or, you know, other, you know Parsons in New York. And they would be faced with a whole bunch of problems and challenges that no one in fashion school told them about, you know, and the industry was really good at kind of amping up and giving attention to all of these creative talents, but without really preparing them for what was to come. Sadly, that incubator lasted about eight months mm -hmm. uh, and I had to shut it down. Yeah, but it was the, a failure that led to event. It was a it's failure, like but I met Diane Pernay, who's sitting here in the front row, and a couple of other bloggers. And I didn't even know what a blog was. But uh, Diane and a couple of others um, who I met early on during that journey of setting up that incubator showed me that you could kind of share what you were experiencing. And like, this is before Facebook, before Instagram, before Twitter, before any of that existed. In fact, blogs were like the first form of social media. Yeah. It was the first place where you mm -hmm. could say, I've seen something and it inspired me or I've experienced something and I learned from it and I want to share that with you. And so really my blog that I started writing um, was a personal thing. It was a, it's a, it was a form of personal expression. And initially it was behind a password. Mm -hmm. It was only for my friends and family to see my journey from McKinsey to the fashion world. And when the incubator failed, I took the password off that blog. I designed a little banner in PowerPoint because that's what I knew. What there was at the time. Uh, and I called it the business of fashion. And uh, that was January 2007. I mean, you've often been called an overnight sensation, which is absolutely not the case. No. But tell me a little bit about the evolution from those early days to now. You know, were you very conscious of the stages you wanted to meet, the layers to the business that you were creating, or did it was it more haphazard? It was not planned or a premeditated or big vision that I had that mm -hmm. I'd be sitting here in Egypt talking to, you know, a room full of people, you know, about the fashion industry. I had no idea. It was also not haphazard mm -hmm. because I have always been an obsessive person. Well, and, and so the management consultant in you. Yeah, so and so like I was, that. I just, you know, when I was younger, I, I was obsessed with the billboard music charts and I used to go to HMV and like, I used to open billboard magazine yep. and I used to obsess over like, where was Janet Jackson and where was Michael Jackson and where was the pet shop boys? And like, I've always been really obsessive about information. Mm -hmm. I had a stamp collection when I was really young. I was obsessive about organizing that stamp collection in a way that made sense to me. And I'd organize it by country and then by color. And like it was, I've always been someone who organizes things. And in a way, I brought that same obsessiveness to the way that I was creating this thing. So it wasn't haphazard. It was done with a lot of care, attention, and thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. And I think really what happened was is that I'm a very curious person. And I'm always 
interested in what's happening in the world. And I was very curious to see how things that were just starting to happen in the world might impact this industry that I was getting to know. So I think I was maybe one of the first people who asked the question, how might this little thing called Facebook impact the fashion industry? And then what is the impact of all of these clothes that we're producing and selling and disposing of? Like, what might the impact of that be on the planet mm. and on our environment? The sustainability element. Why is it that the fashion industry is so narrow in its communication uh, of what beauty looks like? About why does the fashion industry never talk about India or China? Like, why is it that we ignore vast, vast countries that are filled with lots of creative people. I mean, the industry, as I was observing it back in 2006 and 2007, was so, it was so myopic. You know, there was not a lot of interest in like the fact that actually fashion is an industry that exists everywhere. And Imran, do you think that that's really changed? I think um, it's really starting to change. I think there's still a lot more mm -hmm. uh, that we need to do as an industry but yeah it's it's starting, it's starting. To change yeah because as, as people who live or who, who are based in a non-western country when you look at any website it's still very western centric the the imagery um the style of the fashion um there's still a lot of influence coming from the us and europe um but and it's a slow change if well, you're saying that the there leadership. is a change look at the leadership yeah the business leadership and the creative leadership. And if you look at the business leadership and the creative leadership, the people who make the decisions, yeah. they don't look like me. That's right. They don't look like you. That's right. Um, and so ultimately, in order to get the change that we need, we need to see the designers, the executives, the leaders, the people who make the industry happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the content we create and the events that we produce, you know, in the in the community that we've been building at BOF since those very first posts that I started writing back in 2007, the idea was to completely shift the way the fashion industry sees itself and to shift the way the rest of the world sees fashion. Because fashion is not this like superfluous, you know, ignorant, um, vacuous industry filled with people who just want to go around drinking champagne. Mm. You know, fashion is an industry filled with passionate people all over the world who are interested in creativity, who are interested in community, who are interested in connecting with people and and kind of leaving a mark on the yeah. on the world that we live in. And that's why I am so delighted and so proud to to be you know play a small part in shifting the industry mm. to think differently mm. about itself. When we come back in a moment, Imran tells me about the impact of COVID on his business and mistakes big brands make when it comes to our region. This episode is brought to you by EFG Holding. For 40 years, EFG Holding has been realizing more for its clients across its three distinct verticals, EFG Hermes, the investment bank, EFG Finance, the non-bank financial institutions platform, and AI Bank, the commercial bank for clients looking to EFG Holding as a gateway to the most compelling equities in frontier and emerging markets. EFG Holding is for investors looking into renewables, healthcare, and education, 
for consumers seeking innovative solutions to achieve financial freedom from purchasing a home to educating their children, for businesses of all sizes working to unlock their full potential, for shareholders who require visibility, profitability, and confidence in our growth strategies, and for communities in need of sustainable development to drive change. EFG Holdings' goal is to build an ecosystem of businesses that work seamlessly together to provide clients with best-in-class, end-to-end financial solutions at every stage of their lives or the growth of their businesses, creating a positive impact on our society, economy, and the environment. EFG Holding is a trailblazing financial institution with a universal bank in Egypt and the leading investment bank in the Middle East and North Africa. See the world differently and realize more with EFG Holding. Welcome back. This is my conversation with Imran Ahmed, founder of The Business of Fashion. COVID impacted so many businesses across the planet. It impacted people's um, perceptions of how they want to live their lives. It impacted um, uh, the work-life balance. It impacted uh, physically where you work. Are you working from home? Are you working in an office, et cetera? How did COVID impact your business particularly, your actual brand? And what kind of a shift have you seen in the industry as a whole as well? The impact on our business was pretty immediate. Yeah. First of all, we were supposed to move into a brand new office in April 2020. Oh, wow. Um, So I came back from Paris Fashion Week that first week of March 2020 with the plan to sign a lease on this big, huge new office in London, in Soho. Not signing that lease probably saved mm, my business, mm, actually, because yeah. not having to pay all, all that of rent, that rent. Of course. Uh, it was my CFO, Fraser Park, who I will credit forever in the history of BOF, who said to me, maybe we don't need an office. Um, and so we didn't sign that lease. Uh, we ended up going home uh, and doing a test work from home just to see how the whole team could operate. We'd been using virtual tools like zoom and slack for years already because our team is dispersed all over all over the world and we had to use those tools to make it work when we went home that day to do the test work from home we never went back to the Mm. office Um, when the lockdowns began i think march 23rd in the uk almost immediately all of our business lines experienced a sudden drop Uh, Our careers business, people stopped hiring. All the hiring was frozen. We had planned events in Brazil and China and New York that year. Those were all on hold. Um, Our advertising business plummeted. uh, And our subscription business pretty much went down to zero. But why, sorry, Imran, why would the subscription business go down? I think the first two weeks of lockdown, everyone was still trying to figure out like, what the hell is happening? Right. They were trying to get like sanitizer and yeah. masks. And then they had I think, I think once people were all settled, settled in their work from home yeah. situation and then they realized like, oh, I need a bit more oh, than this. crap. Yeah. Like this is going to go on yeah. for a while. Then our subscription business just went like, why not? Of course. And actually the rise in our subscription business almost made up for all of the declines in all of our other businesses. And that was thanks to our members, Mm -hmm. all the people who, I mean, honestly, BOF would not be here if our members didn't come and support us during that period. Um, It was incredible. I remember looking at the numbers 
and seeing like 180%, 200% growth over the same month in the previous year. And my heart just, I mean, I felt so ready. And I sat down with my team virtually, of course, and I said, our role, our responsibility is to act as a guide. And I used the example of a Sherpa. You know, Sherpas are these um, incredible individuals that, you know, guide people through the mountainous terrain yep. in the like Himalayas, right? You never know what you're, you're going to encounter. You don't know what problems lie ahead. And I said, we have no idea what's going to happen, but our job for the next whatever time period this is going to last is to act as a guide for the industry as we navigate a once in a century, mm -hmm. um, you know, global health crisis. Yeah. Uh, and so by the end of that year, our revenues were only down 10%. That's amazing. The previous year. And that's really thanks to everyone. All of our members, we have members in 125 countries around mm. the world, including Egypt, I'm, I'm proud to say. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just thankful to everyone for supporting us through that period. And hopefully, we were able to live up to that mission to really guide the industry through the crisis. And which of your uh, um, business focuses, you've got several arms to the business, which is your, your biggest moneymaker or the area you put the most focus in? By far, it's our membership business, BOF Professional. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, we have about 100,000 members now in 125 countries. Mm -hmm. They include almost all of the top 50 largest fashion companies in the world with whom we have B2B relationships. They include students and entrepreneurs. They include executives and creative people. They include people who have no professional interest in fashion, but are just obsessed with the industry yeah. and follow it like a sport. It's people, investors. I mean, it's it's literally it's, the whole yeah. fashion industry yeah. now that we engage with. And so that is our engine of our business. We also have a careers business and we have an events business and we have a new business, which is called BOF Insights. We'll talk more about BOF Insights right after this break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to my conversation with Imran Ahmed. So you've got this new arm to the business, which um, sort of does a deep dive in terms of the analytics of different regions, different areas of the business. And you just come out with a report on the Middle East and specifically yes. the retail industry, right? Yeah. Walk us through that because there are some really interesting nuggets that are, you know, that we can pull out of there. Primarily, which I had noticed and we talked about yesterday, this idea of localization, yeah. which is, you know, most people today are much more interested in, especially in the Middle East, it's an anecdotal thing that I had noticed, um, people 
are, you know, there's a pride in wearing your national dress. There's a pride in wearing local designers and featuring jewelry from your, your region or, uh, highlighting, um, the, you know, the, the treasures, the, the heritage of your region. And you, and you notice that in your report. Um, how does that, how can that translate into dollars? Uh, how do the big brands in the West cater now to a market that is more inward looking? The reason we did that report is we do, we do a survey every year of uh, all the executives, top executives in the fashion industry as part of a report we put together with McKinsey, which by the way, mm. we now do a partnership they, with, which is like a full circle moment. <laughs> And in that report, you know, end of 2022, um, people were still quite worried about 2023. So one of the questions we always ask is like, well, what opportunities do you see? What markets are you looking at? And when we asked senior executives around the, around the world, around, you know, which market they were most optimistic about, which one they were looking at most closely, it was the Middle East. And you asked far. those questions in 2022. End of 2022, okay. right? So we do a report looking at, right. it's called the State of Fashion. We do it every year. So okay. the State of Fashion report, uh, that report said that executives around the world in the fashion industry were looking at the Middle East as the kind of, with the greatest optimism and excitement. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, we should double click on that. Of course. And when we did our own research through BOF Insights, what we learned is that, you know, the, some of the biggest challenges that luxury brands, international brands have when thinking about this market, and, you know, the market is obviously vast. You know, Egypt is not like Kuwait, is not like Saudi, is not like Dubai. I mean, all of these... And you have different spending power. In, in, there's different spending yeah. power. There's different local traditions. I mean, but one of the commonalities that we found was actually that... Um, you know, the, the luxury executives or the customers in these regions, rather, they feel like a little bit the way these brands treat them is a bit tokenistic. Mm -hmm. And so some of the examples around Ramadan, for example, when, um, you know, the brands are you know, issuing... The Ramadan kaftan look. They're doing kaftans <laughs> or they're, they're, they're doing everything in green. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they're just, it's the same phenomenon we saw, see in China around Chinese yeah. New Year. They, you know, they do everything in red with dragons on it. Very cliche. Super cliche and really not understanding yeah. that the customer everywhere in the world has access to the same information. So if they have access to the same information because of the internet, um, because of the transparency that provides, they have the same sophistication. They have the same nuances. They have the same awareness about all the brands. They want to be treated with a, a level of respect and understanding. And intelligence. And intelligence. Yeah. And re reflection, of course, of the local culture and customs. And you can't do that sitting in Paris or That's New right. York or, or London without really empowering teams in local markets to inform you. You know, and that's how this industry was built. It was built on this way that all of the decisions are made by like one or two people. There's only one spokesperson or two spokespersons. There's only one person who can make all the decisions. That doesn't work anymore. And so when it comes to building successful businesses here in the Middle East, these brands need to think a lot more about, you need to spend a lot more time in the market. They need to talk to the customers and they need to empower local teams so they can really create activations 
um, products, experiences that really resonate with customers and they must be done on the same level with the same level of care and understanding yeah. that they do all of their events in other parts of the world. I mean, there's also an opportunity for the acquisition of local labels, right? To incorporate those into the wider or the larger uh, fashion conglomerates and have that those local um, that local arm available. Actually, probably not. Mm -hmm. Those big luxury conglomerates are too big and uh, too focused on these really big businesses to ever really give proper care and attention to, the to small a small local business in a market where they don't spend time. Right. So I don't think that that's will happen. That's probably not an, an option. But that's the competitive advantage for all of you. Yeah. You know, for you who are small business owners, entrepreneurs, designers who understand this market, who understand, you know, the Egyptian, and I saw a little bit last night, you know, the energy, the kind of expressiveness of the culture, you understand that better than anybody else. So as you're trying to build your own businesses here in this market, you need to do, do so with the reflection of your understand. That's something that none of those people will ever understand as well as you do. That's your superpower. And hopefully with events like Egypt Fashion Week and the community building and industry building that's happening here, there's also an ecosystem and community of people where you can all support each other. What I don't like to see in the fashion industry is backstabbing, competitiveness, sharkiness. That doesn't work. You know, this is a community. And I think the more that we can create mutual understanding, the more we can help each other and learn from each other, especially in local markets that have been overlooked, you'll never succeed if you're competing with each other and not working together. I just want to end our talk with something I do on my podcast regularly, which is I ask my guest what is in their cultural inbox. What are they watching, reading, listening to at the moment that's left an impact? So Rick Rubin is this legendary music producer. And he's not like one of those music producers who only understands one genre of music and is known for one type of music. Like Rick Rubin works with everybody, you know, and he was a creator of this thing called Def Jam Records. Mm -hmm. He has this new book called The Creative Act. He says the, the, the book and this podcast with Krista Tippett on being, it really explores this idea of like where creativity really comes from. And although like I'm not working in the music industry, I found this so inspiring because he, he pretty much says like, Creativity is not this thing that comes from inside. It comes from the like from the world as you interpret it, or as you interact with it. Exactly, yeah. and it, it really resonated with me because, like, as a creative person, as someone who's like been building this creative company for the last fifteen mm -hmm. years, like you know, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, my, like my creativity comes from the world as I experience it, the world as I see it. Yeah. You know, I would never have been able to create BOF if I hadn't been from this family that migrated from all of these different places that, you know, my identity is so intersectional. It's so multifaceted. It's so multi-layered. That's why I'm able to create something like BOF, like something clicked in my brain yeah. when I was listening to that podcast this morning. So I highly recommend uh, Rick yeah. Rubin. I mean, I think we all have these pivots in our lives, right? Which it's like stepping stones and you connect the dots and you build from where you were and one, it's like layers that you build on, yeah. and um, and you have you have quite a few of those. So yeah. that was great, Imran. Thank you. Of course. Thank you very much.
That was Imran Ahmed, founder of the business of fashion. Imran was appointed a member of the Order of the British Empire in 2017 for services to the fashion industry. He's been included in British GQ's prestigious list of the 100 most influential men in Britain, as well as Indian GQ's list of the 50 most influential global Indians and Wired UK's list of the 100 most influential figures in Britain's digital economy. If you're a member of the show, you'll get a bonus episode next week with insightful questions from the Egypt Fashion Week's live audience. And if you'd like to watch extended clips from our interviews, you can find them on our new YouTube channel. You can also connect with us by searching for what I did next on Instagram X or on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Malak Fuad, and you've been listening to what I did next from a Media. Hope you can join us in a couple of weeks' time.